The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And are they one and the same? Are they different? Um, the Buddha doesn't talk that much about unselfishness. I mean, he does talk about compassion. But you have to remember that given the principle of karma, when you do something good for other people, you're going to benefit. Right. And when you do something good for yourself, other people will benefit as well, if, you're, if it's really genuine doing good. So our, I, our understanding of unselfishness needs to be... Needs to be adjusted. Adjusted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. And then also giving in relationship to the... Uh, to greed, the poison. Okay, well, that's, that's definitely, this is a good antidote to greed. Okay. A, a, pro, a, a prime anecdote? It's, it's, it's or basic, a good one? It's the basic one. It's the basic, it's one. The basic mm-hmm. one. Okay, mm-hmm. thank you. Passage 31, before we go on to the next topic. This is basically the three factors of the donor, the three factors of the recipient that make a gift bear great fruit. The three factors of the donor that you're before giving, you're glad, while giving, your mind is bright and clear, and after giving, you're gratified, you feel happy. Now, this sounds like the responsibility of the donor, and it is, but it's also the responsibility of the recipient. You know, once you receive something, you want to make sure that the donor stays glad that they gave it to you. You don't want to abuse their generosity because that would spoil the quality of their generosity. <clears throat> Secondly, for the re- practice of the recipient, the recipients are free from passion or practicing for the subduing of passion, free of aversion or practice for the subduing of aversion, free of delusion or practicing for the subduing of delusion. Again, on the one hand, this is the responsibility of the, of the recipient to be practicing this way. But also, if, you know, for a donor who wants to give, you look around, well, who's actually practicing this way? Those are people that I would want to, I would want to benefit. So it's, it's kind of a mutual responsibility between the donor and the recipient for making sure that the gift bears great fruit for the donor. Question over here. Namely, gratitude, which is... Uh, there's a suit about it and something else. I wonder whether it's late or early. Where it divides it into two things. One thing is you acknowledge you mm-hmm. received a benefit. And number two, you return in kind or spread it around. It's like that, uh, like metta. It's one of those Buddha things that's contagious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is, that, is that earlier or is that later? Well, they have, they have two, two terms that both tend to be translated as gratitude. Katanyu which means having a sense of what was given, literally. That you know, that you realize, I, I, I benefited from this person's gift, so I received this gift, and so I appreciate that. And got to wait till he was, it was, would be the real feeling of gratitude then. And the sense, okay, feeling gratitude, what do you do? You repay the, repay the debt, or if, there's no, if the person is not there to repay, you pass it on. And it, it's, it's a very subtle distinction, and, and the texts don't really explain it that clearly. So you, you, know, you have to ask a native speaker, and there are no native speakers around anymore. So it's kind of guesswork as to what the division is between the two terms. Native speaker of what? Polly. Native speaker, right? I'm not a native speaker. <laughs> Polly. It's like Latin. You're a priest. 
No, no, no. <laughs> Priests are not native speakers of Pali. Is it, is it considered, uh, is the Buddha actually said that, or is it yeah, like one of those? It's, it's one of those. Yeah. Like early ETB. ETB. BT, okay. Question in the back. Um, <clears throat> I have a, uh, it's, it's a lesson of generosity that, that I am over, over, the, over the past 10 years have been looking at and learning through. And um, maybe it was more than 10 years ago, uh, my husband and I gave a large um, loan to somebody so that they could go to college with the understanding we would be paid back. But, and it was a gift. So um, the recipient did not then... Pay back. Well, yeah, it became, it became a problem. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, um, they gradually, you know, a little... They, they, was, they came to an understanding that month to month they would, that she would pay back. And it became increasingly not comfortable. And there would be months it didn't happen. So then a couple of months ago, I gave another gift. Half of it. So half of it was paid back. And that, so I gave another gift, which was loan forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And deciding to give the loan forgiveness was twofold. One... I wanted to be released of that burden, and it was going to release the recipient of the the that burden. And yet, it still it still it it, it I feel freer, and not and there's still a something around it. Right. It was the better of the not good choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd say, okay, learn how to appreciate. Okay, I was able to. I had them enough money so I could actually make that gift and be done with it, and appreciate that fact. And I said, at the very least, okay, I'm going to get that money back in a future lifetime. <laughs> 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 at the very least. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, being reborn among the four great kings is not bad. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to renunciation. We've got an hour to do four. Um, so it's 15 minutes per, per, per perfection. Okay, renunciation. This is part of right resolve. And it should be seen again as, as generosity. It's a trade, it's not a deprivation. And the question is, what are you renouncing? You're renouncing sensuality. Very early on, I was doing a survey of some American Buddhist books. I looked into the index to see what they had to say about renunciation, and of course, very few of them had anything to say. Um, but there was one book that said you have to learn how to renounce unhealthy relationships, and another one said you should learn how to renounce your controlling mindset. 
Now, you don't need the Buddha to tell you those things. Your parents will tell you, get out of bad relationships. <laughs> your psychotherapist will tell you, stop your controlling mindset. The Buddha is talking about sensuality. And what he means by sensuality is not sensual pleasures, it's our fascination with thinking about them, planning for them. You know, I, when, when I leave this retreat, I'm going to go and have a pizza, and it's going to be at this pizza parlor, and I'm going to put these toppings on it, and it's going to be really good. No, wait a minute, I'd rather have those pizza toppings. And you could think about this for hours. And you eat the pizza, it's what, 15 minutes? And then after the pizza's done, wasn't that a great pizza? And you can talk about the pizza, how great it was, and get, get yourself primed for the next pizza. That's sensuality. That's what the Buddha's talking about. And learning how to renounce that is going to be an important part of the practice. Because the Buddha's not saying that all pleasures of the flesh are bad. It's the pleasure that comes from seclusion, the pleasure that's based on harmony, and the, the pleasure that's based on basic health. Um, remember the, what we talked about using the requisites, and that you do use the requisites for the sake of your health and for the sake of your well-being. That's perfectly okay. But it's this fascination we have with going over and over and over what essential pleasure is going to be, and then after it's done, sort of elaborating for ourselves. That's the way the mind sets itself up to go for it again, basically. You know, all the, the magazines about wine, the gourmet magazine. I mean, you sit there and you're not eating anything, but you're salivating, you know. <laughs> That's the kind of thing the Buddha's talking about. And by engaging in sensuality like that, we're priming ourselves to be, say, well, if I'm going to be happy, I have to have this, 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 and this particular sensual pleasure. You're placing yourself in a position of weakness. In order to be happy, I've got to have things just so. Whereas if you're not contemplating or you're not fascinated with that stuff all the time, then you find that you do have more time, more energy for things that are actually more beneficial. And we were commenting yesterday on how the Theravada list of the perfections does not include the practice of jhana or right concentration. I think it comes in here, because as the Buddha said, you're not going to be able to overcome your attachment to sensuality unless you have an alternative pleasure, which is not sensual, i.e., at the very least, the first jhana. You can, say, you can understand the drawbacks of sensuality, that it puts you in this position of weakness, you're dependent on other people for your happiness. Um, when you have something, other people will be jealous of you. When I was in France a couple of months back, um, I was mentioning what they called the BMW Chill. Do you remember those commercials? This guy comes up to the top of a parking garage, and there are these ordinary cars, but they're his BMWs right there. <laughs> and he gets this chill, you know. <laughs> and you want to shoot him. <laughs> but that's what they're selling you. They're selling you the sensuality. They're not selling you the car. They're selling you the, this fascination around you know, who I am because I have a BMW, and all that other stuff that comes around the, the consumption of sensual pleasures. And Buddha says, you can think about the drawbacks. You know, if you do get a BMW, somebody might key it. Nobody keys you know, an old Nissan Sentra, but if you get a BMW, watch out. And, um, so you think about all the drawbacks of all these things. But he says, you can think about these drawbacks, but you still go for it because you don't have an alternative. This is why you have to practice concentration. You learn how to meditate so you can give rise to a sense of well-being by the way you breathe. Like we did yesterday, working with the breath energies in the body, that gives you a sense of pleasure inside that is not sensual. 
It's physical, but it's not sensual. There's a distinction. And so this way you can start pulling yourself away with your, from your fascination with that kind of thing. And in that way, that's, that becomes the, the perfection of sensuality. Remember the Buddha and his course toward his awakening. He had that vision of the, the lumber that was in water and was full of sap, and then the lumber that was out of the water but still full of sap, and then there was the lumber that was totally dry. And it's only the lumber that's totally dry that gives rise to a good fire. So in, the, in this way, he saw that, okay, if, if you're in, indulging in sensual pleasures all the time and your mind is, has a sap of sensuality, it, you, it's not going to have a fire. You can't set fire to your mind. Even if you take it out of the enjoyment of sensual, sensual pleasures, but you still have the sensuality, it still can't set fire to it. You have to get it dry. He thought that meant that, that meant you have to go totally without any pleasure at all, which was a mistake. And the way you get out of that is to find an alternative pleasure, which would be the alternative, the pleasure of jhana, pleasure of concentration. So that's quick. Well, you know, it, he did it when he, saw, he had the vision of the wood outside of the water with no sap. He thought that meant that he was it, the only thing he could think of, the only alternative to sensual pleasure would be pain. And that was the mistake. That's when he realized, okay, there is an alternative pleasure which is not sensual pleasure, which is, what, which is part of the path. That would be the correct interpretation of that, that image. Who is this the Buddha. On the way to his awakening, because it was a result of that that vision that he went and endured six years of self torture. Question: Yes. Memories will arise yes. simply as a result of past karma. Now the question is, how do you feed on them? That becomes the sensuality in the present moment. And you've got to watch out for that, because you say, gee, that was really good, that means, well, I want some more of that. That's <laughs> what it comes down to. <laughs> so you're setting yourself up for more entrapment. So, okay, that was pleasant, it was nice, but I don't need to feed on that now. Thirty-three passion. Passion is raga. Mm -hmm. The word is raga. It's not tanha. It's a question behind you. Um, I think, like eating good food, you know, would be like part of sensual pleasure, mm -hmm. and. Um, I tend to go back to the same restaurant over and over because of the food. Mm -hmm. But I don't think about it when I'm not there. Mm -hmm. Would it be a problem? Not really. The Buddha is talking more about your fascination. Well, I go to this restaurant because 
you know, there's the atmosphere, and this time I'm going to try that, and then let's try this other restaurant over here. And there's just this constant mm. wandering around. Okay. Mm. All right, thank you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I found as you know, becoming a monk, this was one of the hardest things to give up, was the ability to choose my food. Mm-hmm. And the, the woman who was the cook at the, at the monastery was an awful cook. <laughs> <laughs> I was a better cook than she was. <laughs> it was very frustrating to see her take, you know, people take really good things that would gift her and she would ruin them. And I realized I had to, I've just got to stop thinking about this. I'll eat what I eat. And then, you know, as long as the food is healthy, you're okay. Again, the problem is not the central pleasure, it's this fascination we have with feeding off of it. And many times it's not just, it's not a great central pleasure, but part of your identity becomes identified with these are the things I like. I'm the kind of person who does this. I'm the kind of, look at the personal ads they have. It's all about the central pleasures I enjoy, which just defines me. So there's a strange sense of self-definition around that kind of activity. I have a question about um, the sensual pleasure. I never thought of food being a sensual pleasure until this talk. Mm-hmm. And now that brings up well, if I make reservations for a, pers- for a friend to go out to dinner with me, mm-hmm. and then I'm looking forward to the food that we're going to eat at this restaurant, mm-hmm. any restaurant, mm-hmm. whichever one I choose, mm-hmm. that we would look forward to, is that sensual pleasure, looking forward to going the, out the, to dinner the, the with that person? The sensuality is that I'm thinking, about, yeah, but isn't that going to be really nice? That's going to be really neat. And you're kind of, you know, getting yourself worked up. So if you... Think about the dinner too longingly. That's sensuality. That's sensuality, yeah. So you make your plans. Okay, okay we'll be. Okay. And all of a sudden, see, that sounds awfully dry. I don't get to think about it beforehand. I don't get to think about it afterwards. Well, again, it's good, it's good to look at actual what you are getting out of that experience without all the elaboration that goes around it. This is what you know, positive psychologists have, have noticed not very much, was that you talk to people about what makes them happy, and they'll say, oh yes, X makes me happy. And then they'll actually arrange to interview the person while that person is engaged in X. And they'll say, you know, it's not all that happy afterwards, after all. But it's the elaboration beforehand and the elaboration afterwards that we're getting a primed to fall for this. There was one um, psycho, um, positive psychologist who was saying, you know, why are people so stupid? And then he thought about himself. He was a mountain climber. And he began to realize that he thought he liked mountain climbing, but he realized while he was climbing the mountain, it was pretty miserable. It was beforehand and afterwards. And so we can talk ourselves into doing some pretty stupid things, uh, the idea that this is actually making me happy. But if you do it without the embroidery, just look at it for what it is, then you find that you're much less, you know, the mind might be willing to give up some of this. Um, my next question along these lines, now that I'm getting this picture, is the same thing happens for like trips I'm going to take. Half of the enjoyment of the trip is looking it's forward to the trip. Mm-hmm. And the other half is actually taking the trip and enjoying it. And the, and other, the other half is afterwards. Well, <laughs> yeah, the other half is afterwards. Um, and that, that builds on the second, on actually having been there and enjoyed it. But... If our goal in life is happiness, Mm -hmm. doesn't restricting ourselves to not enjoying Mm -hmm. 
and savoring things like that, doesn't that cut down on our happiness? What well, means that you're going to have to look elsewhere for your happiness? Right? I mean, these are perfections for the sake of, un- of awakening. You say, maybe I, maybe I don't need to have all, if I'm not, if I really look at the happiness I'm getting out of these things, and it's not really as much as I'd like to tell myself, maybe I'm going to look someplace else for my happiness. That's what the Buddha is saying. Yes. He's not trying to say, don't look for happiness, but look for happiness that really is... In different places. Look yeah. in a different place. Thank you. passages on sensuality are pretty much self-explanatory. I just wanted to notice that the, the descriptions of luxury back in the Buddhist time, passages 35, paragraph 1, 2, 3, 4. Suppose a householder or householder's son has a house with a gabled roof, plastered inside and out, draft-free, with close-fitting door and windows shut against the wind. Inside, he has a horsehair couch spread with a long fleece coverlet, a white wool coverlet, an embroidered coverlet, a rug of kandali deer hide, a canopy above, and red cushions on either side. And there, a lamp would be burning, and his four wives with their many charms would be attending to him. This is <laughs> luxury in the Buddhist time. <laughs> and someday, someone's going to look back on our luxuries and think the same thing. Question. Traveling mic? Where's the mic? The sensuality, the, the emphasis on the word, takes me back a bit because I imagine uh, the anticipation of reading a great book. Mm-hmm of the hearing the Dharma talk, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't, or, or my, my sense of jhana doesn't have that oddly sort of pita to it, mm-hmm. but it's just much more sukha. And so how is that central? How is it? Okay, um, looking forward to good Dharma talk, I would not say it's a central pleasure. I mean, you're looking forward to the ideas. You're going to have anticipation. But then you begin to realize, I mean, I don't really need this if I've got an alternative source of pleasure. You go to the Dharma talk without having to get all worked up about it beforehand. You know, think about it just enough to get you in the car and get you in the, in the room. That's funny. But it, it's, that, uh, things like that, or reading a good book, or thinking thoughts, or, or even meditating, getting, you know, doing a jhana session, is something that one anticipates, clings to, Okay, well, the way, again, if the way the path, it functions, the way sensuality does. It's okay to cling to it, but it's for the things that are pulling you off the path. You wonder, well, why am I clinging? You do have to hold on to the path while you're practicing. And the anticipation of good meditation said, would not be with that kind of sensuality. I mean, that's not pleasure, this sight, sound, smells, taste, tactile sensations. Okay. I was wondering if there was a the sixth sense. Well, we're talking did. about the five senses. Oh, okay, so sensuality doesn't apply to the sixth sense. Again, to this, the pleasure of jhana, it would not apply. So that's an alternative. That's your substitute. That's your substitute. Oh. 
passage 36, where the Buddha says, when you enter in the first jhana, when you really learn to appreciate the pleasure and rapture, then if perceptions of sensuality come up, you, f you experience them as an affliction. Because you realize, okay, this pleasure is something better. And if I start going back to thinking about sensuality, it is an affliction, it's heavier. You have to be sensitive to that, to appreciate what the Buddha is trying to say here. Actually, I had a question about that. Um, so, does disenchantment and sort of disgust start arising when you see the sensuality, and that like, drives you to want to do jhana practices? It doesn't or? necessarily have to be disgust, but just say, Geez, I, I, "This is not satisfactory. This is not enough. I want something better." Okay. Fed up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're fed up. And there's a book by John Lee, Frames of Reference, where he's talking about practicing concentration. He starts out with contemplations to give rise to a sense of sangwega, which is a sense of dismay over, gosh, my life has been devoted to things that really don't give satisfaction. And that, he says, that's really good for getting the mind into concentration, because I need, I need an alternative pleasure, an alternative happiness. So. Okay, endurance. Oh, is there a question? Yeah, well, there, there's, seclusion would be a, sensual ple a sensory pleasure, but it's um, you know, conducive for the, for the practice. Then, you could, then it's okay to be thinking about it and enjoying the thought of it, anticipating it. The word's not saying don't anticipate anything. He's saying, look, where, where, are you, where are you putting your hopes for? Where are you going to find your, your true happiness? You're going to be a little bit more discerning and have higher standards for yourself. Two more perfections and we're done. And the teenage kids can wait, okay? Okay, endurance. This word, Pali word, is kanti. It can also be translated as patience or tolerance. This, together with equanimity, is needed for stamina on the path. It's also one of the ways in which you benefit yourself by benefiting others. In other words, if you can develop in the ability to endure other people's harsh words, endure other people's mistreatment, and not flash back at them. Okay. Okay, you're, you're treating them well, instead of flashing back at them. And at the same time, you're developing good characters of your own, of your own heart, your own character. Okay, when you're practicing endurance, you have to make distinctions as to what should and should not be tolerated, based, based on the principles of karma. The text fo focused mainly on things that you should tolerate would be harsh words and physical pain. These are the results of old karma. In dealing with harsh words, the Buddha says you have to learn how to depersonalize them so that it doesn't have, they don't have the sting that they would have if you said, gee, why is this person mistreating me like that and I don't deserve to be treated like that and I'm just miserable? Take the I out of there. The Buddha gives two ways of thinking that way. One is he, um, he says, you know, we live in a human world. What are the nature, what is the characteristics of, what are the characteristics of human speech? There are kind words and there are unkind words. There are timely words and there are untimely words. Words spoken with good intentions, words spoken with bad intentions. It goes down the list. In other words, when someone says untrue and untrue, and when people say untrue, harsh, unkind things, um, this is not out of the ordinary. This is part of the human world. 
and just say, okay, it's not, I'm not the only person who's experiencing this right now. Think about all the world, people all over the world who are being treated this way, and have been treated this way, and will be treated this way. It takes a lot of the personal sting out of these words. That's one way of depersonalizing it. The other way of depersonalizing it is, as the Buddha said, remind yourself, an unpleasant sound has made contact at the ear. <laughs> Let it stop there. Which is what we usually don't do. We bring it in and we elaborate it. We say, why is this person saying this? And why am I being mistreated? If you can just leave it, there's an unpleasant sound at the ear and leave it at that, then the harsh, then you can learn how to tolerate words that otherwise you would, you would not be able to tolerate. And you realize that a lot of what makes it intolerable is what you were doing and sort of bringing this on yourself. All that, the kind of thinking that makes it, that makes it difficult to stand. And John Mahabua says, he has a statement, he said, when someone says something about you that's got you going for hours afterwards, you know, that breath with which they said it is, is long gone. And yet it's still reverberating in your mind. So you can't, you know, it's... And sometimes the person who said it's probably forgotten it already, but you're, you're the one who's carrying it around. So it's, learn how not to carry it around. And when you're not carrying it around, then you don't find that it's such a heavy weight to bear. But the second thing that you deal with pain, um, the Buddhists, for learning how to tolerate pain, this comes under um, the second tetrad in breath meditation. You may have read about the four steps there. There's breathing in and out with a sense of rapture, breathing in and out with a sense of ease, seeing the process of mental fabrication as it's happening, and learning how to calm that mental fabrication. Those are the ways you deal with pain. In other words, you find, is there some part in the body that I can make it? give a sense of refreshment, sense of rapture around the pain. So I'm not focusing on the pain so much. Secondly, you've got that sense of rapture, a sense of ease and well-being in other parts of the body. And then you can look at the process, how does the mind create mental suffering out of a physical pain? And it's the process of verbal and mental fabrication. And particularly it's the perceptions you're holding around the pain. And the things you're telling yourself about the pain. And so you learn how to question those. We could talk for a whole, whole day on different techniques for questioning pain. We'd mentioned a little bit earlier, what is the perception you hold? Is it a, is it pain a solid thing? Can you learn how to see it as moments of pain? When the moments of pain are there and you can see that, the question is, are they coming at you or are they going away? And one of the perceptions I found very useful is you think of yourself as like sitting in one of those old station wagons where they have the seat facing back. And as you're riding down the road, whatever comes into your range of vision is going away, going away, going away, as soon as you see it. And then you can hold that same perception of the pain, but you don't feel that it's coming at you, you're not feeling attacked by the pain. And it arises and goes, rises and goes. If you hold that perception in mind, you find that the pain is a lot easier to bear. Several years back I was getting a treatment in um, a Chinese doctor in Singapore, and he had sort of rubbed oil into my back. And then he pulled out these two bamboo whisks, which were basically pieces of bamboo that had been sliced very thin, like that, and then just started beating on me. And my first thought, of course, is, you know, what karma did I do to do this? You deserve this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized this was going to go on for about half an hour. I better learn how not to suffer from it. And so I developed that perception. As soon as it hits, it's gone. As soon as it hits, it's going away, going away. 
And I found I could put up with the pain a lot more easily that way. Well, that's, that, that's, I did not do anything to deserve flogging. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this was a legitimate doctor. <laughs> so, but when you, when you find yourself dealing with physical pain, think of those four steps in the breath meditation. Learn how to breathe with a sense of ease, sense of rapture. Learn how to see how am I fabricating my perceptions and around this feeling. Can I change the perceptions? so that the feeling or pain doesn't have that intense effect on the mind. And that way you find that you can learn how to tolerate and deal with things that otherwise might physically be very hard to, hard to bear. So those are the things you have to learn how to tolerate, harsh words and physical pains. The things you don't tolerate are unskillful mind states. An unskillful mind state comes into your mind, you've got to do what you can to get it out. Now, this may involve taking time, and it may be a delicate process, but your basic attitude is, I can't just let this thing sit here, I've got to learn to question it. And, understand, and question why I'm holding on to it. Okay. When we're dealing with endurance, as with equanimity, this is a mind state that's highly affected by the stories you tell yourself. So there's a verbal fabrication that goes in here as well. Particularly the stories yourself about what's happening, why is this happening. And when the Buddha had, was attacked by that rock that Devadatta rolled down the hill, and Mara comes and we talked about this yesterday, Mara comes and taunts him. The Buddha says, I'm not sitting here moping, I'm sitting here with sympathy for everybody. So you don't tell yourself, gee, this isn't horrible, I'm sitting here, I can't do anything. Okay, this is my opportunity to practice. This is my opportunity to thought, spread thoughts of goodwill, say, when you're sick. There was a passage in the book, Joseph and His Brothers, by Thomas Mann. Do you know that book? It's one of those big monster books that you should anticipate reading. It's really good. <laughs> but there's a scene there, you know, the story with Joseph. He gets accused of having attacked Potiphar's wife. And there's a scene in the book where Joseph is being taken to the prison, and the the boatman who's taking him there sees that Joseph is not upset. He seems to be taking it all very calmly. And the boatman gets upset. You know, you should be upset. You're going to prison. And Joseph says, that's not the story I'm telling myself. I'm, this is part of a bigger plan. This is just a temporary setback in my story, but it, there's a bigger plan going on. So he changed the story that he was telling about his life, and that really made it a lot easier to bear. So if you're telling yourself the story, this person is horrible, I can't stand this person, I can't, and go on and on and on like this, you're the one who's weighing yourself down with your stories. What if you learn how to tell yourself a different story, like, hey, I'm, I'm going to get this back in a <laughs> future lifetime. <laughs> it's a lot easier to bear with the fact that you're not getting your money back. <laughs> well, and, and also that it was another gift. It's another gift, yeah. Learn to see it as another gift, yeah. But learn to tell yourself a different story about what's going on. Okay, that's endurance. Any questions about endurance? Yes. Mike. Is the same concept applied to like emotional pain and let's say fear, phobia, all kinds of things that Yeah, you have to one learn how to first breathe around the, the emotional pain. Look back at the, how you're breathing around it so I can calm your breathing. And then, then you put you in a better position where you can ask yourself, 
what, what are the stories I'm telling myself about this? Can I change the story? have serious phobia and fear towards dogs, okay? Mm-hmm. Then how do I tell myself a different story to get over that? Okay, in that case you might want to have, have some, uh, some time with really cute little dogs. <laughs> find, find the least threatening dog in the least threatening situation mm-hmm. and be with that dog for a while. Mm-hmm. And then sort of make a map for yourself from one to ten, okay? What's and so you start with something that is very unthreatening and then move up to something that's a bit, little bit more threatening, but you're able to breathe calmly around that and, ask, and see, okay, this dog doesn't want to bite me. It's just, you know, if, if I scare the dog, the dog might react, but I, I'll try to do my best not to scare the dog. And then begin to realize that you're actually more in control of the situation than you may have thought. And for to tell your story, it's not that, I mean, there are rabid dogs out there, but I don't think they have any rabid dogs in the Bay Area, right? <laughs> and so there's no dog that's going around wanting to bite people. And sort of tell your story, you know, get to know dogs a little bit better in unthreatening situations. That's how you do with a phobia. <coughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. But generally, with any kind of you know really difficult emotional emotional state, it's good to learn how. Tell yourself, breathe calmly, and then ask yourself, what stories am I telling about this? Can I change the story? What perceptions am I holding in mind? And as for the dog, have you been bitten by dogs? Mm-hmm. Okay, so lots of goodwill to those bad dogs. <laughs> Anything else about endurance? Okay, we have five minutes for equanimity. <laughs> okay. Basically, this too has to be regarded in line with the principles of karma. And the first lesson you have to learn is past bygones have to be past bygones. And the big one, of course, you have to deal with is grief over personal loss. And the Buddha talking about grief, Manta King Basenity, King Basenity is talking to the Buddha, word comes to him that his favorite queen has died, and he breaks down. And the Buddha basically says, on the one hand, he says, try to depersonalize it. He doesn't use those words, but he says, since when has there ever been a case that people don't die? It's going to happen. This is a natural thing all over the world. So you think of the larger picture to begin with. And then he goes on to say, okay, to whatever extent you find that expressing your grief is serving a purpose, go ahead and do it. Don't feel that as a Buddhist you have to hold it in. And whatever expression you have, eulogies for the person who passed away, expression of how much you miss the person. There will, however, come a time when you realize that your expression of grief is actually harming you. And that's the time you have to learn how to say, enough. Soka, somanasa, it can be any, any kind of any kind of, you know, s- sorrow or sadness. So, but it was the word It's interesting, there are two passages in the Tarigata where nuns talk about how they had lost their children and the Buddha comes and speaks to them. One is, 
this one woman has lost a son. And he tells her, you don't know the path of his coming or going, this being who has come here from where? The one you lament as my son. But when you know the path of his coming or going, you don't grieve after him, for that is the nature of beings. Unasked, he came from there. Without permission, he went from here. Coming from where? Having stayed a few days. In coming one way from here, he goes yet another from there. Dying in the human form, he'll go wandering on. As he came here, so he's gone. So what is there to lament? In other words, this is a person, who's a total stranger comes into your life and it goes off as a total stranger. Begin to realize that, that that connection you had is not quite as intense or total as it, you know, the son you're having now. It was somebody else's son before, and will be somebody else's son again. Another one, Jiva, my daughter, you cry in the woods. Come to your senses, Uberdeet. 84,000 people, all named Jiva, have been buried in that charnel ground. For which of them do you grieve? Again, thinking about the, the fact of death as being just universal. It takes some of the personal sting out. When the Buddha talks about noting the fact that, you know, that it's going to be hard to meet someone who has never been your mother or your father or your brother or your sister or your son or your daughter, it's not, it's not a teaching on how to have goodwill for everybody. It's a teaching on dismay. That you realize that you've lost that many brothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and sons and daughters over and over and over again. And so the question is, are we going to find a way out? So again, he's not saying you have to feel equanimity there, but there is equanimity is possible even in a case like that. The other issue in terms of karma that you have to deal with in equanimity is what are the results of taking the equanimous attitude? There's, he says there are some times when equanimity should be developed and other times when it should not be developed. Just sort of sitting there and seeing something horrible happening in front of you, you don't just say, oh, that's just the karma beings. If you can stop it, you stop it. That's not a time for equanimity. It's when something is beyond your power to help, that's when you have to have equanimity. So you can focus your energies on areas where you can can be of help. So this is what this is why we develop equanimity, not so you just get indifferent to things. It's when you learn it's for the purpose of focusing your energies on areas where it will be actually will be a benefit. When you have duties that get in the way of what you want, okay, you have to develop equanimity for that. I've got this duty. It has to put my other desires on hold. And the Buddha is not telling you you don't, don't have an attachment to the people you love. I mean, the attachment to your parents, your children, is something that is normal. But the question is, how much do you have to feed off of that attachment? <clears throat> to what extent does your happiness totally depend on that attachment? And that's where you've got to learn how to train yourself to say, I've got to learn to have an attitude that, okay, I'm attached to this person, but if the person had to go, I could still function, I could still live in this life. I don't, I don't need this person in order to be happy. And this is why you, one of the reasons why we practice meditation, so you have that internal resource that you can draw on. That's equanimity in daily life. As for equanimity in meditation, there are times when it is unskillful. The Buddha says you have to balance concentration, persistence, and equanimity as you practice. There are times if you were just equanimous, your concentration would never develop. 
you've got to work on getting the mind concentrated sometimes, which requires persistence. If you're just putting a lot of effort in, you get restless, that's when you have to learn more concentration and equanimity. If you just sit there concentrating without trying to go to higher states, you're being lazy. So you have to balance these different qualities in your mind, even as you practice meditation. The issue about why equanimity is not the goal is because there can still be feeding off of the equanimity. You can get to a really nice state of concentration, and you're still feeding off of that. And there's, wherever there's feeding, even if it's something relatively pleasant and stable, there's going to be stress. So equanimity is one of the factors we develop, but it is not, it's not the goal. And the Buddha talks about levels of equanimity. There's equanimity based on diversity or multiplicity. Let's say multiplicity or diversity has other meanings. Um, multiplicity, in other words, when you make up your mind that you, whatever happens, I'm just not going to react. And then there's equanimity that's based on your concentration, which is much stronger. That's equanimity based on unity. When you've got the singleness of mind. And that is much stronger than the equanimity that comes from just, I'm just going to not react out of force of will. I mean, it's kind of a poker face that you have to take in, a poker mind that you have to develop in things, but the best poker mind is the one that's based on a state of concentration, because that has a much more solid foundation. So, those are the main things about equanimity. Any questions? Yes. So, you've referred today and yesterday also to uh, feeding off of things. Mm -hmm. So, I'm thinking that you're, I'm trying to, is feeding off of something, does that mean you're de basing your happiness on it? Right. So, um, something can come along and you can enjoy it, but then if it leaves, you, but you weren't trying to be happy based on that enjoyment. There'll probably be some feeding in there, but you have to look at is, is this the kind of feeding that I, you know, I would just again, I'd get my fangs out if they try to take it away from me, or is it okay? okay. And then secondly, by enjoying this thing, what, what kind of states of mind are being developed? Okay. Question here. So, equanimity based on multiplicity, as you said, it's just a force of will, sheer force of will, mm -hmm. uh, keep away from uh, maybe sensual thoughts or whatever it is. Is mm -hmm. that is that something like the fifth mode of uh, destroying thoughts uh, that we discussed in the beginning? Uh, the five ways to deal with thoughts. Not fifth necessarily. Mode. It doesn't have to be that fifth one, but just uh -huh. say, I'm just not going to go there. That would be ignoring the issue. Okay. So essentially all those techniques that are there for just getting into first jhana is still only equanimity based on multiplicity? Right, right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So equanimity based on singleness or unity, mm -hmm. yeah, that's the fourth jhana. Yeah, in this text that it says, actually the formless jhanas, but formless it would, I mean, jhana. you've got the fourth jhana, but it should, it should also apply. Okay. Uh, so the Buddha is very clear about stream entry 
mm-hmm. and what happens after that. Does he make mention of um, nearing stream entry and the momentum that beings pick up to you know encourage them? Well, if you're headed... The problem is if he, if he described it, everybody would try to clone it. We had a, an old Air Force general. He'd been in the Korean War. He'd killed a lot of people in the Korean War, and he wanted to make sure he didn't go to hell. So after he came back, he really got into meditation. And he ended up building a little hut for himself to meditate at the monastery. And there was one time when John Fuang was away. And I came back from my alms round. He came up to me in front of the dining room. Last night was really big. It was this step. And he, he, he had had it all mapped out. But what comes right before stream entry? I've only got two steps to go. Um, and I said, I'm happy for you, but I really need to eat my meal right now. Thank you. <laughs> and then the next day, it was one step, you know. And the next day, John Fuang came back from Bangkok. And as I was, what I would usually do when he came back from Bangkok, I would unpack his little bag and he'd kind of tell me things that happened in Bangkok and ask me what was happening there at the monastery. And I said to him, Chode, which was the name of the, uh, the general, uh, seems to be going off his rocker. He thinks he's on the verge of stream entry. He's only got one more step. And John Fung's response was interesting. He said, you didn't try to sit, argue with him, did you? I said, no. He said, good, because if you're not really his teacher 100%, the more you argue with someone who makes a claim like that, the more they get entrenched. So you just kind of leave him. And he told the story about a John Munn when people had been practicing off in the woods in, in the caves on their own and thought they'd attained, you know, our hardship or something like that. They'd come and see a John Munn. And John Munn wouldn't say anything. He just said, well, just stay around here for the time being. And usually just kind of staying in his presence for two or three days, kind of calm them down, and they realize, okay, they, they made a mistake. And just after he finished saying that, Chode comes running up the stairs to report his you know, verge. You know. And I don't know if he heard the last statement or not, but he heard enough to say, I've been a fool. And he bowed down to John Ford. He said, okay, that's a case, a real student-teacher relationship. And he, oh, you don't have to say that much. The student will back off. So I think, I think it's wise that Buddha doesn't describe a lot of these things in too much detail, because then we try to clone them. There we go. Yesterday, I was listening to yesterday's last night, and a lot about Moon and Lee and uh, Ajahn Man, Ajahn Lee. Ajahn Lee, yes, yeah. and and uh, acknowledging that that monastics cannot discuss attainments, especially their own, but. From your experience in, in Thailand, is the general sense among informed people that Ajahn Lee and or Fuang were Arahant? They were noble disciples. Arya. Noble disciples, not necessarily Arahants, but noble disciples. What does that mean? It could either be stream enderer, once return, or non return Arahant. There are four stages. Arya, a noble Arya. person. Yeah. Like, well, like some people say, Cha or Ajahn Sayadaw. Mahasi was, you know, talked like that in Thailand. Among the monks, they talk about. It. Of course, the gossip then spreads out. But it, that's what it is: is gossip. Okay. You don't really know. The Buddha said you can't really judge someone else's attainment. In Burma, you get a certificate, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not responsible for Burma. Okay. <laughs> well, I, what I can tell you is this. Apparently, John Mahabu had made a comment about Ajahn Sawat, the, the Abhidhanda Metta, 
that he was an arahant. And there's one day when Ajahn Swat said to me, you know, when Ajahn, when Ajahn Mahabhava said that, I wasn't yet an arahant. Which made you stop and think, you know, all these, you know, certified, whatever. You don't really know 100%. And your, your business is, your, what is your attainment? You focus on that. You find people you find inspiring, you learn from them, but still, the work is inside. I think this is one of the meaning of, you know, the question, does a dog have Buddha nature? And the answer is no. Why is it no? Because you're looking in the wrong place. If you want to see awakening, you have to look inside. That, that came up yesterday in listening to it because those stories you tell about them are so profoundly inspiring mm -hmm. that this person was really there. He yeah. was really on to something. I mean, I have my beliefs about the attainments about some of these people, but I, I can't 100% guarantee them. Anything else? So, more of an overview question. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose to teach or to um, convey your sense of the perfections in this list form versus the normal one that mm -hmm. we learn, which starts with generosity, virtue, mm -hmm. da, da, da? Because the list, as they have it, really doesn't make, doesn't, it's not a progressive list. And my sense of what she meant by progressive is that that quality of determination, discernment is well, that progressive. What makes you, you might start. It starts out with giving and virtue. Right, it sounds exactly. like it's starting a basic stuff, but then it kind of moves up and moves down, back and forth and around. And so, one perfect question for the end of the day. Yes. One is that um, realizing that all the perfections do come under the perfection of determination, because it's, there's something you have to make up your mind you're going to do. And then when you think about making up your mind you're going to do this, what are the qualities you need? And as the Buddha said, you need discernment, truth, relinquishment, and calm. And then the, the perfection, all the perfections come under those, those headings. And I thought that would be a useful way of seeing them. Also, putting together the ones that work together, like putting discernment together with goodwill, because that underlies the whole rest of the why you make the determination to begin with. Right. Truth, putting truth together with virtue and persistence, those qualities tend to reinforce one another. The same with renunciation and giving, and the same with equanimity and endurance. It's good to group them like this because they make sense together. It, it, it's true, though, it seems from um, the way you've taught this, is that discernment, is skillful, one. unskillful, fundamentally right. mm -hmm. is the name of the game right. mm -hmm. in terms of the practice. Mm -hmm. But the refrain that I woke up with is, is um, in terms of the feel of this, this lecture the, the day before and today also is that the refrain was you've got to be smart about it. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's a process of a process of of, as, of Discernment, discernment related to sort of a smartness. Um, well, it can be street smarts, I, I, path but, smarts, you mean. and that's it's like I'm given two buttons. Mm -hmm. There's two buttons always, mm -hmm. 
and it's in a shifting sort of field. And I'm developing this this intelligence to hit the right button right. Mm-hmm. in this constantly shifting, moving field. Mm-hmm. And the practice is sort of the cultivation of that type of uh, awareness to hit that button mm-hmm. in this. And the, the, the teachings give you kind of a, a framework so that you're not constantly swift shift around by the shifting right. field, that you, you have a sense of your purpose and where you want to go. As I said, you know, awakening is not everybody's guaranteed goal, but you have to make your mind, this is where I want to go. I want a happiness that's harmless, happiness that's true. This is how you do it. And so when you're faced with choices in life, you try to keep this, these qualities in mind. Are these, this choice I'm going to make, is it going to develop these qualities or is it going to hamper them? It gives you kind of a measuring stick. So the, my last question is, do we lose something when we translate Pana as discernment versus wisdom, and and is mm-hmm. is something lost in that? There may be a loss, but I think there's a lot of gain. Because okay. you tell somebody, you know, develop your wisdom, and he's like, I don't have any wisdom. But it's asking you to look back. Okay, where do you already have some discernment? Can you apply that ability to discern things in this field, in this field as well? And that was precisely the conversation I had with the John Fung that made me change my way of dis- translating the word. He once said, use your banya. And he said, I don't have any banya. <laughs> and he said, if you didn't have any banya, you wouldn't be a human being. You know? And I can think of a lot of human beings who don't have any wisdom at all, but they, we have some discernment about things. Right. So you work on that and you build on that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. right out of that question, which is uh, like uh, power, the power of judgment, your essay, mm-hmm. we're 99.9% we're deluded, so we need guidance, we need, we need people uh, to, to judge it, like yesterday, it's discernment, how can you know that it's the right discernment? But is there a point, like uh, also that uh, Dhammapada, whatever it is, your reference to yourself, that you are your reference, the Dhamma is your reference, equating the two. Is there a point, like, for instance, is so, so no, sat, stream entry, whatever you call it, Sotapati, a point where you're self-reliant, where, after, you don't need this ex, where you don't need this external help? After that experience, I mean, you, you know what the path is, you know what the goal is at that point. Now, you still have some issues that you're going to have worked out. You haven't mastered, fully mastered concentration yet. You haven't fully mastered your discernment yet. But you've, you've had the experience that guarantees, okay, this is the right path. Because you've seen the deathless. And at the same time, you realize that, okay, this path that I'm following is the path that leads there. The Buddha knows what he's talking about. And you've, got, you've gotten a sense of the path at that point. So you could get, for instance, I'm like, I look at the world today, and there's so few qualified uh, uh, monastic teachers mm-hmm. and, and everyone needs this guidance they need someone to say you're going off the cliff mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's very rare to get that guidance mm-hmm. and, but is, is there a point where you don't need it anymore yeah. after, after stream entry you, you're, you're safer well let's do it okay. okay so thank you for your attention hope this has been helpful <laughs>